0: Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Medusa's Coils by H.P. Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop Volume 2. Chapter 4. Well, the thing exploded on Tuesday, the 26th of August. I had risen at my usual time and had breakfast, but was not good for much because of the pain in my spine. It had been troubling me badly of late and forcing me to take opiates when it got too unbearable. Nobody else was downstairs except the servants, though I could hear Marceline moving about in her room. Ma slept in the attic next to his and had begun to keep such late hours that he was seldom up till noon. About ten o'clock the pain got the better of me, so I took a double dose of my opiate and laid down on the parlour sofa. The last I heard was Marceline pacing overhead. Poor creature, if I had known. She must have been walking before the long mirror, admiring herself. That was like her, vain from start to finish, reveling in her own beauty, just as she reveled in all the little luxuries Dennis was able to give her. I didn't wake up till near sunset, and knew instantly how long I had slept from the golden light and long shadows that were on the ground. Nobody was about, and a sort of unnatural stillness seemed to be hovering over everything. From afar, though, I thought I could sense a faint howling, wild and intermittent, whose quality had a slight but baffling familiarity to it. I'm not much for psychic premonitions, but I was frightfully uneasy from the start. There had been dreams, even worse than the ones I had been dreaming in the weeks before, and this time they seemed hideously linked to some black and festering reality. The whole place had a poisonous air. Afterwards I reflected that certain sounds must have filtered through to my unconscious brain during those hours of drug sleep. My pain, though, was very much eased, and I rose and walked without difficulty. Soon enough I began to see that something was wrong. Marsh and Marceline might have been out riding, but someone ought to have been getting dinner in the kitchen. Instead there was only silence, except for that faint distant howl or wail, and nobody answered when I pulled the old-fashioned bell cord to summon Scipio. Then chancing to look up I saw the spreading stain on the ceiling, bright red that must have come through the floor of Marceline's room. In an instant I forgot my crippled back and hurried upstairs to find out the worst. Everything under the sun raced through my mind as I struggled with the dampness-warped door of that silent chamber. Most hideous of all was a terrible sense of malign fulfillment and fatal expectedness. I had, it struck me, known all along that nameless horrors were gathering, that something profoundly and cosmically evil had gained a foothold under my roof from which only blood and tragedy could result. The door gave at last, and I stumbled into the large room beyond. All dim from the branches of the great trees outside the windows. For a moment I could do nothing but flinch at the faint evil odor that immediately struck my nostrils. Then, turning on the electric light and glancing around, I glimpsed a nameless blasphemy on the yellow and blue rug. It lay face down in a great pool of dark, thickened blood and had the gory print of a shod human foot in the middle of its naked back. Blood was spattered everywhere, on the walls, furniture, and floor. My knees gave way as I took in the sight so that I had to stumble to a chair and slump down. The thing had obviously been a human being. Though its identity was not easy to establish at first, since it was without clothes and had most of its hair hacked and torn from its scalp in a very crude way. It was of a deep ivory color, and I knew that it must have been Marceline. The shoe print on the back made the thing seem all the more hellish. I could not even picture the strange, loathsome tragedy that must have taken place while I slept in the room below. When I raised my hand to wipe my dripping forehead, I saw that my fingers were sticky with blood. I shuddered and then realized that it must have come from the knob of the door which the unknown murderer had forced shut behind him as he left. He had taken his weapon with him, it seemed, for no instrument of death was visible here. As I studied the floor, I saw that a line of sticky footprints, like the one on the body, led away from the horror to the door. There was another blood trail, too, and of less easily explainable kind. A broadish, continuous line, as if marking the path of some huge snake. At first I concluded it must be due to something the murderer had dragged after him. Then, noting the way some of the footprints seemed to be superimposed on it, I was forced to believe that it had been there when the murderer left. But what crawling entity could have been in that room with the victim and her assassin, leaving before the killer when the deed was done? As I asked myself this question, I thought I heard fresh bursts of that faint, distant wailing. Finally, rousing myself from a lethargy of horror, I got on my feet again and began following the footprints. Who the murderer was, I could not even faintly guess nor could I try to explain the absence of the servants. I vaguely felt that I ought to go up to Marsha's attic quarters, but before I had fully formulated the idea, I saw that the bloody trail was indeed taking me there. Was he himself the murderer? Had he gone mad under the strain of the morbid situation and suddenly run amuck? In the attic corridor the trail became faint, the prince almost ceasing as they merged with the dark carpet. I could still, however, discern the strange single path of the entity who had gone first, and this led straight to the closed door of Marsh's studio, disappearing beneath it at a point about halfway from side to side. Evidently, it had crossed the threshold at a time when the door was wide open. Sick at heart, I tried the knob and found the door unlocked, Opening it, I paused in the waning north light to see what fresh nightmare might be awaiting me. There was certainly something human on the floor, and I reached for the switch to turn on the chandelier. But as the light flashed up, my gaze left the floor, and its horror, that was Marsh, poor devil to fix itself frantically and incredulously upon the living thing that cowered and stared in the open doorway leading to Marcia's bedroom. It was a tousled, wild-eyed thing, crusted with dried blood, and carrying in its hand a wicked machete, which had been one of the ornaments of the studio wall. Yet even in that awful moment I recognized it as one whom I had thought more than a thousand miles away. It was my own boy, Dennis, or the maddened wreck which had once been Dennis. The sight of me seemed to bring back a trifle of sanity, or at least of memory in the poor boy. He straightened up and began to toss his head about, as if trying to shake free from some enveloping influence. I could not speak a word, but moved my lips in an effort to get back my voice. My eyes wandered for a moment to the figure on the floor in front of the heavily draped easel, the figure toward which the strange blood trail led, and which seemed to be tangled in the coils of some dark, ropey object. The shifting of my glance apparently produced some impression in the twisted brain of the boy, for suddenly he began to mutter in a hoarse whisper, whose purport I was soon able to catch. He said, I had to exterminate her. She was the devil, the summit and high priestess of all evil, the spawn of the pit. Marsh knew and tried to warn me. Good old Frank, I didn't kill him, though I was ready to before I realized, but I went down there and killed her, and then I killed that cursed hare. I listened in horror as Dennis choked and paused and began again. "'You didn't know. Father, her letters got queer, and I knew she was in love with Marsh. Then she nearly stopped writing. He never mentioned her. I felt something was wrong, and thought I ought to come back and find out. Couldn't tell you. Your manner would have given it away. Wanted to surprise them. Got here about noon today.' came in a cab and sent the house servants all off, let the field hands alone, for their cabins are out of earshot, told McCabe to get some things in Cape Dorado and not bother to come back till tomorrow. Had all the servants take the old car and let Mary drive them to Ben Village for a vacation, told them we were all going on some sort of outing and wouldn't need help. I told him they better stay all night with Uncle Skip's cousin who keeps that black boarding house. Dennis was getting very incoherent now, and I strained my ears to grasp every word. Again, I thought I heard that wild, far-off wail. But the story had first place for the present. He went on. Saw you sleeping in the parlor and took a chance you wouldn't wake up. Then went upstairs on the quiet to hunt up Marsh and and that woman. The boy shuddered as he avoided pronouncing Marceline's name. At The same time I saw his eyes dilate in unison with a bursting of the distant crying whose vague familiarity had now become very great. She was not in her room, so I went up to the studio, father. Door was shut and I could hear the voices inside. Didn't knock, just burst in and found her posing for the picture. Nude, but with that hellish hair all draped around her and making all sorts of sheep's eyes at Marsh. He had the easel turned half away from the door so I couldn't see the picture. Both of them were pretty well jolted when I showed up and Marsh dropped his brush. I was in a rage and told him he'd have to show me the portrait, but he got calmer every minute. Told me it wasn't done. But would be in a day or two, said I could see it then, and that she hadn't seen it. But that didn't go with me, Father. I stepped up and he dropped a velvet curtain over the thing before I could see it. He was ready to fight before letting me see it, but that, that, she, she stepped up and sided with me, said we ought to see it. Frank got horribly worked up and gave me a punch when I tried to get at the curtain, I punched back and seemed to have knocked him out. Then I was almost knocked out myself by the shriek that 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 creature gave. She'd drawn aside the hangings herself and had caught a look at what Marsh had been painting. I wheeled around and saw her rushing like mad out of the room. And then I saw the picture. Madness flared up in my boy's eyes again as he got to this place, and I thought for a minute he was going to spring at me with his machete. But after a pause, he partly steadied himself and went on again. Oh, God, that thing. Don't ever look at it. Burn it with the hangings around it and throw the ashes in the river. Marsh Newen was warning me. He knew what it was, what that woman was, that leopardess. Gorgon, Lamia, whatever she was actually represented. He tried to hint to me ever since I met her in his Paris studio, but it couldn't be told in words. I thought they all wronged her when they whispered horrors about her. She had me hypnotized so that I couldn't believe the plain facts. But this picture has caught the whole secret, the whole monstrous background. God but Frank is an artist. "'That thing is the greatest piece of work any living soul has produced since Rembrandt, father. "'It's a crime to burn it, but it would be a greater crime to let it exist, "'just as it would have been an abhorrent sin to let let that she-demon exist any longer. "'The minute I saw it, I understood what she was, "'and what part she played in the frightful secret that has come down from the days of Cthulhu and the Elder Ones.' The secret that was nearly wiped out when Atlantis sank, but that was kept half alive in hidden traditions and allegorical myths and furtive midnight cult practices. For you know she was the real thing. It wasn't any fake, Father. It would have been merciful if she had been a fake. It was the old hideous shadow that philosophers never dared mention. The thing hinted at in the Necronomicon and symbolized in the Easter Island colossi. She thought we couldn't see through, that the false front would hold till we had bottled away our immortal souls. And she was half right. She'd have got me in the end. She was only waiting. But Frank, good old Frank, was too much for me. He knew what it all meant and painted it. I don't wonder she shrieked and ran off when she saw it. It wasn't quite done, but God knows enough was there. Then I knew I'd got to kill her. Kill her and everything connected with her. It was a taint that wholesome human blood couldn't bear, Father. There was something else, too, but you'll never know that if you burn the picture without looking. I staggered down to her room with this machete I got off the wall here, leaving Frank still knocked out. He was breathing, though, and I knew and thanked heaven I hadn't killed him. I found her in front of the mirror, braiding that accursed hair. She turned on me like a wild beast and began spitting out her hatred of Marsh. The fact that she'd been in love with him, and I knew she had, only made it worse. For a minute I couldn't move, and she came within an ace of completely hypnotizing me. Then I thought of the picture, and the spell broke. She saw the breaking in my eyes and must have noticed the machete, too. I never saw anything give such a wild jungle beast look as she did then. She sprang from me with claws out like a leopard's, but I was too quick. I swung the machete, and it was over. Dennis had to stop again there, and I saw perspiration running down his forehead through the spattered blood but at a moment he hoarsely resumed. I said it was all over, but God, some of it had only begun. I felt I had fought the legions of Satan and put my foot on the back of the thing I had annihilated. Then I saw that blasphemous braid of coarse black hair began to twist and squirm by itself. I might have known it. It was all in the old tales, that damnable hair had a life of its own that couldn't be ended by killing the creature itself. I knew I'd have to burn it, so Father, I started to hack it off with the machete. God, but it was devilish work, tough like iron wires, but I managed to do it, and it was loathsome the way the big brain writhed and struggled in my grasp. About the time I had the last strand cut off or pulled off I heard that eldritch wailing from behind the house you know it's still going off and on i don't know what it is but it must be something springing from this hellish business it half seems like something i ought to know but i can't quite place got my nerves the first time i heard it and i dropped the severed braid in my fright then i got a worse fright For another second, Braid had turned on me and began to strike venomously with one of its ends which had knotted itself up like a sort of grotesque head. I struck out with the machete and it turned away. Then, when I had my breath again, I saw that the monstrous thing was crawling along the floor by itself like a great black snake. I couldn't do anything for a while, but when it vanished through the door I managed to pull myself together and stumble after it. I could follow the broad-blooded trail, and I saw it led upstairs. And may heaven curse me if I didn't see it through the doorway, striking at poor dazed Marsh like a maddened rattler, like it had struck at me, finally coiling around him like a python would. He had begun to come to, but that abominable serpent thing got him before he was on his feet. I knew that all of that woman's hatred was behind it, but I hadn't the power to pull it off. I tried, but it was too much for me. Even the machete was no good. I couldn't swing it freely or it would have slashed Frank to bits. So I saw those monstrous coils tighten, saw poor Frank crushed to death before my eyes, and all the time that awful faint howling came from somewhere beyond the fields. That's all. I pull the velvet cloth over the picture and hope it'll never be lifted. The thing has to be burnt, father. I couldn't pry the coils off poor dead Frank. They cling to him like a leech and seem to have lost their motion altogether. It's as if that snaky rope of hair has a kind of perverse fondness for the man it killed. It's clinging to him, embracing him. You'll have to burn Frank with it. But, for God's sake, don't forget to see it in ashes, that and the picture. They both have to go. The safety of the world demands that they go." Dennis might have whispered more, but a fresh burst of distant wailing cut us short. For the first time we knew what it was, for a westerly veering wind brought articulate words at last. We ought to have known long before, since sounds much like it had often come from the same source. It was wrinkled Sofonisba, the ancient Zulu witch-woman who had fawned on Marceline, keening from her cabin in a way which crowned the horrors of this nightmare tragedy. We could both hear some of the things she howled and knew that secret and primordial bonds linked this savage sorceress. With that other inheritor of elder secrets who had just been extirpated. Some of the words she used betrayed her closeness to demonic and Pelagian traditions. Iye, Iye, shub, niggeroth, yah, relay, negagi, nibulu, bwana, nololo, yo yo, poor missy Tanit, poor missy isis, Mas, clulu come out in the water and go get your child she done dead she done dead De hair ain't got no missus no more moss clulu oh sophie she know old sophie she done got the black stone out of the big zimbabwe in old africa old sophie she done dance in the moonshine round the crocodile stone before de Nabangus catch her and sell her to the shipfolk No more Tannit, no more Isis, no more witch woman to keep de fire going in the big stone place. Ya yo Nagangi Nabulu Buana Lolo, e a shub niggerath, she dead old Sophie no That wasn't the end of the wailing, but it was all I could pay attention to. The expression on my boy's face showed that it reminded him of something frightful, and tightening his hand on the machete boded no good. I knew he was desperate and sprang to disarm him, if possible, before he could do anything more. But I was too late. An old man with a bad spine doesn't count for much physically. There was a terrible struggle, but he had done for himself before many seconds were over. I'm not sure yet, but that he tried to kill me too. His last panting words was something about the need of wiping out everything that had been connected with Marceline, either by blood or marriage. CHAPTER FIVE I wonder to this day that I didn't go stark mad in that instant, or in the moments and hours afterwards. In front of me was the slain body of my boy, the only human being I had to cherish, and ten feet away in front of that shrouded easel was the body of his best friend with a nameless coil of horror wound around it. Below was the scalped corpse of that she-monster about whom I was half ready to believe anything. I was too dazed to analyze the probability of the hair story, and even if I had not been, That dismal howling from Aunt Sophie's cabin would have been enough to quiet doubt for the nonce. If I'd been wise, I'd have done just what poor Dennis told me, burn the picture and the body grasping hair at once and without curiosity. But I was too shaken to be wise. I suppose I muttered foolish things over my boy. And then I remember that the night was wearing on, and the servants would be back in the morning. It was plain that a matter like this could never be explained, and I knew I had to cover things up. Invent a story. That coil of hair around Marsh was a monstrous thing. As I poked at it with a sword, which I took from the wall, I almost thought I felt it tighten its grip on the dead man. I didn't dare touch it, and the longer I looked at it, the more horrible things I noticed about it. One thing gave me a start. I won't mention it, but it partly explained the need for feeding the hare with queer oils, as Marceline had always done. In the end, I decided to bury all three bodies in the cellar, with quicklime, which I knew we had in the storehouse. It was a night of hellish work. I dug three graves— my boy's a long way from the other two, for I didn't want him to be near either the woman's body or her hair. I was sorry I couldn't get the coil from around poor Marsh's neck. It was terrible work getting them all down to the cellar. I used blankets and carted the woman and the poor devil with the coil around him. Then I had to get two barrels of lime from the storehouse. God must have given me strength where I not only moved them both, but Filled all three graves without a hitch. Some of the lime I made into whitewash. I had to take a stepladder and fix over the parlor ceiling where the blood had oozed through. And then I burned nearly everything in Marceline's room, scrubbing the walls and floor and the heavy furniture. I washed up the attic studio too, and the trail and footprints that led there. And all the time I could hear old Sophie's wailing in the distance. The devil must have been in that creature to let her voice go on like that for so long. She was always howling queer things. That's why the field blacks didn't get scared or curious that night. I locked the studio door and took the key to my room. and I burned all my stained clothes in the fireplace. By dawn, the whole house looked quite normal, so far as any casual eye could tell. I hadn't yet dared touch the covered easel, but meant to attend to that later. Well, the servants came back the next day, and I told them all the young folks had gone to St. Louis. None of the field hands seemed to have seen or heard anything, and old Sophonisba's wailing had stopped at the instant of sunrise, she was like a sphinx after that, and never let out a word of what had been on her brooding witch brain the day and night before. Later on I pretended that Dennis and Marsh and Marceline had gone back to Paris, and had a certain discreet agency mail me letters from there, letters I had fixed up in forged handwriting. took a good deal of deceit and reticence to explain things to various friends, and I know people had secretly suspected me of holding something back. I had the deaths of Marsh and Dennis reported during the war, and later said Marceline had entered a convent. Fortunately, Marsh was an orphan whose eccentric ways had alienated him from his people, in Louisiana. Things might have been patched up a good deal better for me if I had had the sense to burn that picture, sell the plantation, and give up trying to manage things with a shaken, overstrained mind. You see what my folly has brought me to. Failing crops, hands discharged one by one, place falling to ruin, and myself a hermit and a target for dozens of queer countryside stories. Nobody will come around here after dark nowadays, and any other time, if it can be helped. That's why I knew you had to be a stranger. And why do I stay here? I can't wholly tell you that. It's bound up too closely with the things at the very rim of sane reality. It wouldn't have been so, perhaps, if I hadn't looked at that picture. I ought to have done as poor Dennis told me. I honestly meant to burn it when I went up there to the Lock studio a week before the horror. But I looked first that changed everything no there's no use telling you what i saw you see you can in a way see for yourself presently though time and dampness have done their work i don't think it can hurt you if you want to take a look but it was different with me i knew too much of what it all meant dennis had been right it was the greatest triumph of human art since rembrandt even though it was unfinished I grasped that at the start and knew that poor Marsh had justified his decadent philosophy. He was to painting what Baudelaire was to poetry, and Marceline was the key that unlocked his inmost stronghold of genius. The thing almost stunned me when I pulled aside the hangings, stunned me before I half knew what the whole thing was. You know, it's only partly a portrait. Marsh had been pretty literal when he hinted that he wasn't painting Marceline alone, but what he saw through her and beyond her. Of course she was in it, was the key to it, in a sense, but her figure only formed one point of a vast composition. She was nude except for that hideous web of hair spun around her, and was half-seated, half-reclining on a sort of bench or a divan, carved in patterns unlike those of any known decorative tradition. There was a monstrously shaped goblet in one hand, from which was spilling a fluid whose color I haven't been able to place or classify to this day. I don't know where Marsh even got the pigments for it. The figure and the divan were in the left-hand foreground of the strangest sort of scene I have ever seen in my life. I think there was a faint suggestion of its all being a kind of emanation from the woman's brain, yet there was also a direct opposite suggestion, as if she were just an evil image or hallucination conjured up by the scene itself. I can't tell you whether it's an exterior or an interior, whether those hellish cyclopean vaultings are seen from the outside or the inside, or whether they are indeed carved in stone and not merely a morbid, fungus abortions. The geometry of the whole thing is crazy. One gets the acute and obtuse angles all mixed up. And God, the shapes of nightmare that float around in that perpetual demon twilight. The blasphemies that lurk and leer and hold a witch's sabbat with that woman as high priestess. The black, shaggy entities that are not quite goats the crocodile-headed beast with three legs and a dorsal row of tentacles, and the flat-nosed Egyptians dancing in a pattern that Egypt's priests knew and called accursed. But the scene isn't Egypt. It was behind Egypt, behind even Atlantis, behind fabled Mu and whispered Lemuria, it was the ultimate fountainhead of all horror on this earth, and the symbolism showed only too clearly how integral a part of it Marceline was. I think it must be the unmentionable Rillier that was not built by any creatures of this planet, the thing Marsh and Dennis used to talk about in the shadows with hushed voices. In the picture, it appears that the whole scene is deep underwater, water though everybody seems to be breathing freely. Well, I couldn't do anything but look and shudder. And finally I saw that Marceline was watching me craftily out of those monstrous dilated eyes on the canvas. It was no mere superstition. Marsh had actually caught something of a horrible vitality in his symphonies of line and color so that she still brooded and stared and hated, just as if most of her weren't down in the cellar under the quicklime. And it was worst of all when some of those hecate-born, snaky strands of hair began to lift themselves up from the surface and grope out into the room toward me. Then it was, I knew, the last final horror and I realized I was a guardian and prisoner forever. She was the thing from which the dim first legends of Medusa and the Gorgons had sprung, and something in my shaken will had been captured and turned to stone at last. Never again would I be safe from those coiling, snaky strands, the strands in the picture and those that lay brooding under the lime near the wine casks. All too late I recalled the tales of the virtual indestructibility, even though centuries of burial of the hair of the dead. My life since has been nothing but horror and slavery. Always there had lurked the fear of what broods down in the cellar. In less than a month, the Negroes began whispering about the great black snake that crawled around near the wine casks after dark and about the curious way its trail would lead to another spot six feet away. Finally, I had to move everything to another part of the cellar, for there wasn't a black that could be induced to go near the place where the snake had been seen. Then the field hands began talking about the black snake that visited old Sophonisba's cabin every night after midnight. One of them showed me its trail. And not long afterwards I found out that Aunt Sophie herself had begun to pay strange visits to the cellar of the big house, lingering and muttering for hours in the very spot where none of the other blacks would go near. God, but I was glad when that old witch died. I honestly believed she had been a priestess of some ancient and terrible tradition back in Africa. She must have lived to be almost a 150 years old. Sometimes I think I hear something gliding around the house at night. There'll be a queer noise on the stairs where the boards are loose, and the latch of my room will rattle as if with an inward pressure. I always keep my door locked, of course. Then there are certain mornings when I seem to catch a sickish, musty odor in the corridors. "'and notice a faint ropey trail through the dust of the floors. "'I know I have to guard the hair in the picture, "'for if anything were to happen to it, "'there are entities in this house "'which would take a sure and terrible revenge. "'I don't even dare to die, "'for life and death are all one to those in the clutch "'of what came out of Rillier. "'Something would be on hand to punish my neglect.' Medusa's coil has got me, and it will always be the same. Never mix up with secret and ultimate horror, young man, if you value your immortal soul. Chapter Six As the old man finished his story, I saw the small lamp had long since burned dry, and that the large one was nearly empty. It must, I knew, be near dawn, and my ears told me that the storm was over. The tale had held me in a half-daze, and I almost feared to glance at the door, lest it reveal an inward pressure from some unnameable source. It would be hard to say which had the greatest hold on me—stark horror, incredulity, or a kind of morbid, fantastic curiosity— I was wholly beyond speech and had to wait for my strange host to break the spell. ''Do you want to see the thing?'' His voice was very low and hesitant, and I saw he was tremendously in earnest. Of my various emotions, curiosity gained the upper hand. I nodded silently. He rose, lighting a candle on the table nearby and held it high before him as he opened the door. Come with me, upstairs. I dreaded to brave those musty corridors again, but fascination downed all my qualms. The boards creaked beneath our feet, and I trembled once when I thought I saw a faint rope-like line traced in the dust near the staircase. The steps to the attic were noisy and rickety, with "'several of the treads missing. "'I was just glad of the need to look at my footing, "'for it gave me an excuse not to glance about. "'The attic corridor was pitch black and heavily cobwebbed, "'an inch deep with dust except where a beaten trail "'led to a door on the left at the farther end. "'As I noticed the rotting remains of a thick carpet, "'I thought of the other feet which had pressed it in bygone decades.' of these and of one thing which did not have feet. The old man took me straight to the door at the end of the beaten path and fumbled a second with the rusty latch. I was acutely frightened now that I knew the picture was so close, yet dared not retreat at this stage. In another moment my host was ushering me into the deserted studio. The candlelight was very faint, yet served to show most of the principal features. I noticed the low slanting roof, the huge and large dormer, the curios and trophies hung on the walls, and most of all the great shrouded easel in the center of the floor. To that easel De Russy now walked, drawing aside the dusty velvet hangings on the side, turned away from me and motioning me silently to approach. It took a great deal of courage to make me obey, especially when I saw how my guide's eyes dilated in the wavering candlelight as he looked at the unveiled canvas. But again, curiosity conquered everything, and I walked around to where Darussi stood. And then I saw the damnable thing. I didn't faint, though no reader could possibly realize the effort it took to keep me from doing so. I didn't cry out, but stopped short when I saw the frightened look on the old man's face. As I had expected, the canvas was warped and moldy and scabrous from dampness and neglect, but for all that I could trace the monstrous hints of evil cosmic outsideness that lurked all through the nameless scenes, morbid. Content and perverted geometry. It was all as the old man had said a vaulted, columned hell of mingled black masses and witches' sabbaths, and what perfect completion could have added to it was beyond my power to guess. Decay had only increased the utter hideousness of its wicked symbolism and diseased suggestion. For the parts most affected by time were just those parts of the picture which, in nature or in that extra cosmic realm that mocked nature, would be apt to decay or disintegrate. The utmost horror of all was Marceline, and as I saw the bloated, discoloured flesh, I formed the odd fancy that perhaps the figure on the canvas. "'had some obscure occult linkage with the figure "'that lay in quicklime under the cellar floor. "'Perhaps the lime had preserved the corpse "'instead of destroying it, "'but could it have preserved those black malign eyes "'that glared and mocked at me from their painted hell? And there was something else about the creature "'which I could not fail to notice, "'something which De DeRussi had not been able to put into words, "'but which perhaps had something to do with Dennis's wish to kill all of his blood who had dwelt under the same roof with her. Whether Marsh knew or whether the genius in him painted it without his knowing, none could say, but Dennis and his father could not have known till they saw the picture. Surpassing all in horror was the streaming black hair which covered the rotting body, but which was itself not even slightly decayed, All I had heard of it was amply verified. It was nothing human this ropey, sinuous, half oily, half crinkly flood of serpent darkness. Vile, independent life proclaimed itself at every unnatural twist and convolution, and the suggestion of numberless reptilian heads at the outturned ends was far too marked to be illusory or accidental. The blasphemous thing held me like a magnet. I was helpless and did not wonder at the myth of the Gorgon's glance which turned all beholders to stone. And then I saw change come over the thing. The leering features perceptibly moved so that the rotting jaw fell, allowing the thick beast-like lips to disclose a row of pointed yellow fangs. The pupils of the fiendish eyes dilated and the eyes themselves seemed to bulge outward, and that hair, that accursed hair, it had begun to rustle and wave perceptibly, the snake heads all turning toward de Rossi and vibrating as if to strike. Reason deserted me altogether and before I knew what I was doing, I drew my automatic and sent a shower of twelve steel-jacketed bullets through the shocking canvas. The whole thing fell at once to pieces, even the frame toppling from the easel and clattering to the dust-covered floor. But though this horror was shattered, another rose before me in the form of DeRussi himself, whose maddened shrieks as he saw the picture vanish were almost as terrible as the picture itself had been. With a half-articulate scream of, "'God, now you've done it!' the frantic old man seized me violently by the arm and commenced to drag me out of the room and down the rickety stairs." He had dropped the candle in his panic, but dawn was near and some faint gray light was filtering in through the dust-covered windows. I tripped and stumbled repeatedly, but never for a moment would my guide slacken his pace. Run, he shrieked. Run for your life. You don't know what you've done. I never told you the whole thing. There were things I had to do. The picture talked to me and told me. I had to guard and keep it. Now the worst will happen. She and that hare will come up out of their graves for God knows what purpose. Hurry! For God's sake, let's get out of here while there's still time. If you have a car, take me to Cape Toronto with you. It may get me in the end anyway, but I'll give it a run for its money. Let's get out of here. quick! As we reached the ground floor, I became aware of a slow, curious thumping from the rear of the house, followed by a sound of a door shutting. Tarussi had not heard the thumping, but the other noise caught his ear and drew from him the most terrible shriek that ever sounded in human throats. "'Oh, God! Great God! That was the cellar door! She's coming!' By this time I was desperately wrestling with the rusty latch and sagging hinges of the great front door, almost as frantic as my host now that I heard the slow, thumping tread approaching from the unknown rear rooms of the accursed mansion. The night's heavy rain had warped the oaken planks, and the heavy door stuck and resisted even more strongly than it had when I forced an entrance the evening before. Somewhere a blank creaked beneath the foot of whatever was walking, and the sound seemed to snap the last chord of sanity of the poor old man. With a roar like that of a maddened bull he released his grip on me and made a plunge to the right through the open door of a room which I had judged to be the parlour. Second later, just as I got the front door open and was making my own escape. I heard the tinkling clatter of broken glass, and knew he had leapt through a window. As I bounded off the sagging porch to commence my mad race down the long, weed-grown drive, I thought I could catch the thud of dead, dogged footfalls which did not follow me, but which kept leadenly on through the door of the cobweb parlor. I looked backward only twice as I plunged heedlessly through the burrs and briars of that abandoned drive, past the dying lindens and grotesque scrub oaks, and the great pallor of a cloudy November dawn. The first time was when an acrid smell overtook me and I thought of the candle de Russie had dropped in the attic studio, but then I was comfortably near the road on the high place from which the roof of the distant house was clearly visible above its encircling trees, and just as I expected, thick clouds of smoke were billowing out of the attic dormers and curling upward into the leaden heavens. I thanked the powers of creation that an immemorial curse was about to be purged by fire and blotted from the earth but in the next instant came that second backward look in which I glimpsed two other things, things that cancelled most of my relief and gave me a supreme shock from which I shall never recover. I've said I was on a high part of the drive from which much of the plantation behind me was visible. This vista included not only the house and its trees, but some of the abandoned and partly flooded flatland beside the river. At several bends of the wee choked drive I had been so hastily traversing. In both of these latter places I now beheld sights or suspicions of sights which I wished devoutly I could deny. It was a faint, distant scream that made me turn back again, and as I did so I caught a trace of motion on the dull, grey, marshy plain behind the house.' At that distance, human figures are very small, yet I thought the motion resolved itself into two of these, pursuer and pursued. I even thought I saw the dark-clothed leading figure overtake and seized by the bald naked figure in the rear, overtaken, seized, and dragged violently in the direction of the now-burning house. But I could not watch the outcome, for at once a nearer side obtruded itself, a suggestion of motion among the underbrush at a point some distance back along the deserted drive. Unmistakably, the weeds and bushes and briars were swaying as if no wind could sway them, swaying as if some large swift serpent were wriggling purposefully on the ground in pursuit of me. That was all I could stand, I scrambled along madly for the gate, heedless of torn clothing and bleeding scratches, and jumped into my roadster parked under the great evergreen tree. It was a bedraggled, rain-drenched sight, but the works were unharmed and I had no trouble in starting the thing. I went on blindly in the direction the car was headed for. Nothing was in my mind but to get away from that frightful region of nightmares and cock demons to get away as quickly and as far as my gasoline could take me. About three or four miles along the road a farmer hailed me, a kindly drawling fellow of middle age and considerable native intelligence. I was glad to slow down and ask directions, though I knew I must present a strange enough aspect. The man readily told me the way to Cape Girado and inquired where I had come from in such a state at such an early hour. Thinking it best to say little, I merely mentioned that I had been caught in the night's rain and taken shelter at a nearby farmhouse. Afterwards, losing my way in the underbrush, tried to find my car. At a farmhouse, eh? Wonder whose barn it could have been. Ain't nothing standin' this side o' Jim Ferris's place across Barker's Creek, and that's all o' twenty miles by the road. I gave a start and wondered what fresh mystery this portended. Then I asked my informant if he had overlooked the large ruined plantation house whose ancient gate bordered the road not far back. Funny you should recollect that, stranger. Must have been here for some time. But that house ain't there now burnt down five or six years ago and they do tell some queer stories about it i shuddered you mean old riverside old man to russie's place queer goings on there fifteen twenty years ago old man's boy married a gal from abroad and some folks thought she was a mighty odd sort didn't like the looks of her then she and the boy went off sudden and later on the old man said he was killed in the war. But some of the negroes hinted queer things. Got around at last that the old fellow fell in love with the gal himself and killed her and the boy. That place was sure enough haunted by a black snake. Mean that what it may. Then five or six years ago the old man disappeared and the house burnt down. Some say he was burnt up in it. It was a morning after a rainy night like this one. "'when lots of folks heard an awful yellin' across the fields in old Russy's voice. "'When they stopped and looked, they see the house goin' up in smoke quick as a wink. "'The place was all like tinder anyhow, rain or no rain. "'Nobody ever seen the old man again, "'but once in a while they tell of the ghost of that big old black snake gliding around up there. "'What do you make of it anyhow? You seem to have known the place.' Didn't you ever hear a tell of the de What do you reckon was the trouble with that gal young Dennis married? She kind of made everybody shiver and feel hateful, though you couldn't never tell why. I was trying to think but that brasses was almost beyond me now. The house burned down years ago. Then where and under what condition had I passed the night? And why didn't I know what I knew of these things? Even as I pondered I saw a hair on my coat sleeve, the short gray hair of an old man. In the end, I drove on without telling anything. But I did hint that gossip was wronging the poor old planter who had suffered so much. I made it clear as if from distant but authentic reports wafted among friends that if anybody was to blame for the trouble at Riverside, it was the woman Marceline. She was not suited to Missouri ways, I said, and it was too bad that Dennis had ever married her. More I did not intimate, for I felt that the de Russys, with their proudly cherished honor and high sensitive spirits, would not wish me to say more. They had borne enough, God knows, without the countryside guessing what a demon of the pit what a gorgon of the elder blasphemies had come to flaunt their ancient and stainless name nor was it right that the neighbors should know that other horror which my strange host of the night could not bring himself to tell me that horror which he must have learned as i learned it from the details and the lost masterpiece of poor frank marsh It would be too hideous if they knew that the one-timed eras of Riverside, the cursed Gorgon Lamia, whose hateful, crinkly coil of serpent hair must even now be brooding and twining vampirically around an artist's skeleton in a lime-packed grave beneath a jarred foundation, was faintly, subtly, yet to the eye of genius, unmistakably, the scion of Zimbabwe's most primal grovelies. No wonder she owned a link from that old witch woman, Sophonisba, For though in deceitful slight proportion, Marceline was a negress. The end. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula Audio presentation of Medusa's Coils by H.P. Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop. The creepy theme music called Visitors was composed by Download Production Music and can be found on SoundDogs.com. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvila Audio, we thank you.